This is a special bonus episode of Judaism Unbound, Museums and the Creative Challenge. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we have been telling you for the last few weeks that we're doing an experiment this month with the Council of American Jewish Museums, where we have interviewed three guests. And then those three guests joined me together on a panel to launch the Council of American Jewish Museums conference this year, the subject of which was the Creative Challenge. Our guests were playwright Aaron Henney, the artistic director of Theater Dybbuk in L.A., Yishai Husidman, a painter, and Ivy Barsky, the CEO of the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. Before we jump into the panel, we just want to tell you about one more thing that we're really excited about this week, which is that the organization BIMBOM, which we interviewed long ago on the podcast, an organization that creates short animated videos about the weekly Torah portion and other Jewish subjects, well, they've invited Lex and me to star in a video of our own, an animated video of our own that has just come out. It's on the first portion of the book of Leviticus, and we're really excited for you to see it. This week, the week it comes out, you can see the video just by going to www.bimbam, that's B-I-M-B-A-M.com. And now we hope you'll also enjoy the audio from the opening plenary panel of the Council of American Jewish Museums conference in Los Angeles, California on the Creative Challenge. Thanks so much to the Council of American Jewish Museums for having us. It's been a great journey for us as a podcast to to have a collaboration like this, both to um, have these wonderful guests to talk at length about their their creativity and their expertise in museums, uh, and also to try this experiment for the first time. We've never done this on our podcast before, where we've had a conversation with three of our most recent guests uh, together. So I think it's really exciting to to have these long uh, interviews with you all, and then to be able to talk together uh, here on stage. So so um, we're thrilled to, to be here and to be trying this out. Um, I feel like in a way I'm kind of the uh, paradigmatic museum visitor. I don't really know too much about the mechanics of uh, how the sausage is made. Probably that's a good thing because when I know how the sausage is made, I, I don't want to participate in that organization. Uh, so, you know, so for better or worse, I, I feel like I'm here somewhat, um, like Gravity said, with an inquisitive mind and trying to tease out fundamentally what I, I think at least one part of this question is in terms of the creative challenge, which is that if we, if, if people like me would come to perceive museums as fundamentally places that were engaged in the creative enterprise, that were places that facilitated creativity, that the idea of visiting a museum, a Jewish museum, would, would be that I'm about to have a, a, an experience that's, that makes me feel like a creative person, as opposed to, I think, what many of us imagine, that it, the experience is one of conservation, of, of going to see the past, of memory, all of which are good things. But if we, uh, if we instead had a different understanding of what it meant to visit a museum, what would have to be different? for that to basically be fundamentally the, the experience. And I think for our conversation today, though, the question is, is also, would that be a good thing? Why, why might that be needed? What might that do for the creative process? So a lot of those are the, the topics that we want to discuss today. Um, I'll just let you know that this audio is going to go out on our podcast as a special episode. For those of you who haven't listened to the interviews that we did over the last few weeks, I hope that you will after afterwards, because I think you'll find our guests, our, our friends here, are very fascinating uh, conversationalists. And um, and I would note also that we had a fourth interview with Jonathan Safran Foer last week, who uh, 
uh, before Gravity sat down here, I thought this was going to be the chair of Elijah or Jonathan Safran Foer. Um, but he, uh, there was a, a lot of really interesting, uh, interesting material there, too, for this conversation, which we'll be referring to here. But I would really encourage you to listen to all four of, of those episodes. So, uh, before, so let me introduce our, our panelists uh, briefly, and then we'll, we'll get into the conversation. So um, Ivy Barsky is the CEO and Gwen Goodman Director of the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. And next to her is Aaron Henney, who is the Artistic Director of LA's uh, theater Dibbuk, which is a, a theater company whose work focuses on Jewish folklore and history. And next to me here is Yishai Chosidman, who is a painter whose most recent series is called Prussian Blue, and it consists largely of photorealistic paintings of landscapes and buildings from concentration camps using a limited palette, mostly consisting of the pigment called Prussian Blue, which is chemically identical to a residue left on some of the buildings in the concentration camps by the Zyklon B gas that was used there. So I want to uh, start by, by asking about this sort of question about the creative challenge itself. Um, it, the, the, the image that I keep having in my mind, and it also came up when we were talking to Jonathan Safran for about his creative process, which, like many artists, he um, either struggles to really describe or it really isn't sure. And I think, and I, I was thinking back to the story of the golden calf that when Moses comes angrily down from Mount Sinai and asks Aaron, his brother, what happened here? Aaron says something like, well, I, I just, we threw this golden and out came this calf. And that actually struck me as, as a very true way that artists tend to talk about their work. So I'm not sure to the, what extent we can talk about how creativity comes about, but at the very least, I'd like to talk about and start with you, Aaron. What gets in the way of creativity? What, are, what is the creative challenge in the sense that if some of these obstacles could be removed, creativity could be enhanced? Thanks for the question, and, and good to be here with you all. In terms of challenges to creativity, you know, we can talk about the sort of things we all know that can get in the way of productive output, right? Like funding and resources and time and all of those things. But I, but I think that for me, the two things that really come to mind are one is about this relationship of reactivity versus deep investigation, that we live in a world of constant inputs and there's a lot going on. And as a responsible person engaged in a creative endeavor, I have a responsibility to engage with the world around me and to be responsive. And at the same time, if I am only responsive and only reactive, the deep investigation that needs to take place in order to create in a meaningful, reflective way will not be there. So that tension is very present. Um, the other challenge I find, and, and maybe some in the room find this too, is... is um, in the intersection between how much I am aware of and concerned with the audience user participant experience and how much I am actually just engaged in the act of exploring themes, topics, history, that if I am codependent with my audience, I w might miss the opportunities for creativity because I'm too worried about what they're receiving. And I think creativity happens in the space where I look at a topic, look at a theme, look at history and say, how do I get to the truth underneath the truth? And if I am too worried about whether or not they'll receive the truth, I might miss the chance to really look at it fully. 
So those are the, the challenges I'm reflecting on. The last one I think that comes to mind is about we are often obsessed in our community and in our communities with this word innovation. And creativity, I think, actually lives more in iteration. That we are in a space of going, let me try. You know, Samuel Beckett said, um, try again, fail again, fail better. That this idea that creativity actually happens in the space where something doesn't quite work and I have to revisit it and revisit it and hone it and get curious about it again and again. And do you think that, I mean, are there experiences that you've had or places that you go to help you overcome those challenges? Yeah, I'm thinking of going away next week for like you know, locking myself in a cabin. I'm only half kidding um, because what I find is that um, I can often be very concerned with the immediates of what's happening in the world and I can be very concerned with are people receiving what I want them to receive and I think that I need to fully take in and fully process and then do a little bit of isolation and be able to to kind of take the time and space to get really curious about what's happening in here so then I can turn to what's happening out there. So I definitely um, go away. I will also say the reception of other art and other creativity is really important to me and I'm not just blowing smoke because you're all in museums. I like going to museums. Uh, that, that stepping into a space that engages with history and with artistic creation reminds me that others have come before me and this, uh, on the podcast, we talked about this kind of myth of genius that something is born whole cloth without any reference and, and I'm just letting it birth. And, you know, the rumor about Mozart is that he spent years in his head and so it looked like he just created something on the page in a first draft because he'd already iterated again and again, probably because he was receiving other people's music and other people's creations. So isolation mixed with reception of other artistic works is kind of where I find inspiration. Ishai, um, you know, I, I, it struck me that when we talked that you specifically talked about how your work, Prussian Blue, was instigated by a visit to a museum and, and by seeing another artist's work. And I was curious if you could talk both about this question of the creative challenge, but also how the creative challenge is overcome in a case like that that inspires you. Well, um, as Aaron said, what one does is immersed in a tradition, in a history, in a language. Uh, in my case, uh, painting has certainly, and certainly Western painting has very strong tradition, very, very, uh, specific range of, uh, issues that keep coming up, uh, within that tradition. And, uh, myself as a painter, I grew up, uh, or became a, 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 a an artist publicly in the 19, late 80s, early 90s, when, there was a, a common uh, agreement that painting is dead and it's irrelevant. Uh, and yet, uh, growing up in Mexico City, I decided very, very early that I was interested in painting. Uh, coming to uh, America to study, I, real I became confronted with this notion that what I want to do is no longer uh, valid or relevant. Uh, for me, the, the ongoing uh, drive of my work has been how to reintroduce meaning, relevance, uh, consequence to what I do as a painter. And over the years, I've, 
I have uh, uh, gave my own personal answers to these issues. Uh, when I was visiting uh, San Francisco in 2010, I came uh, uh, to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and I happened to see the show there of a very celebrated uh, uh, contemporary European painter, uh, Luke Doymans, uh, who is second online to the throne of the greatest painter alive after Gerd Richter nowadays. Um, and he bec actually became famous by doing in the late 80s, early 90s, a series of paintings about the Holocaust. And it turns out that, uh, and I didn't realize it until then when I saw this work, that really painters have not, had not addressed the problem of representing the Holocaust in painting. Uh, uh, it, it had become a kind of like a subject that was impossible to deal with for painters, uh, mainly perhaps after Adorno's dictum that uh, doing poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric, and therefore uh, uh, from there it was derived that the Holocaust cannot be represented in art. And therefore, uh, uh, once uh, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, the, the postmodern painters became interested in everything that was had been uh, uh, forbidden to paint uh, before then. Um, Luke Toymans responded to that and did this series of paintings of, uh, of about the Holocaust. And his paintings are very, very uh, schematic, very fuzzy, it's very ambiguous, and it's hard to know what they are. And uh, the, the curators of the show um, said on the wall text that basically uh, Luke Toymans paints the Holocaust in this way because the Holocaust cannot be represented. Uh, for me, that even though I was already aware with that notion, uh, it became evident to me that, that the question then becomes, well, if it's not possible to paint the Holocaust, well, why bother? Why, do, why make a painting that is going to fail necessarily? Well, that, that uh, uh, question uh, fostered in me a, a sense of duty, let's say, of, well, uh, there's been these painters that have been de dealing with the Holocaust, perhaps, in a way in which the paintings need to fail or the Holocaust has to be erased or, or blotched out from memory. Um, how do we do something with the Holocaust in which the language of, pa of painting can actually contribute to its remembrance, but at the same time uh, in which uh, the problem of dealing with the Holocaust in painting reinvigorates the potential of painting as a meaningful subject, a, a, a meaningful medium, I mean. Uh, I started uh, investigating about uh, the problem, the, the, what, what potentially could be uh, uh, in, uh, related between painting and, and uh, the Holocaust. And it turns out that, uh, lo and behold, uh, one of the uh, characteristics of the, of the gas, the Zyklon B gas, uh, was that it produced for strange coincidences, these blue stains on the walls of certain gas chambers. Especially if uh, people have visited Majdanek here, uh, they, they must have seen, uh, you must have seen these 
blue stains that are very intense on the walls. And uh, it turns out that the chemical composition of those stains is identical to a pigment that painters have been using for a long time, for two, uh, 300 years now, it's, which is called Prussian blue, of all things. Um, and that for me was the connection. Here we can do something, and just as you mentioned, you know, the, here we have some gold and just a calf came out. Uh, well, here I have Prussian blue, what am I gonna do with that? And that became the challenge, and, and, and for the next six years, I developed a series of paintings that, dealt, that deal with this problem. So Ivy, let me ask you a, a, a version of this question, which is, uh, what is the creative challenge for the work of museum cur curation and museum, uh, creating museums, you know, what, and, and, and there, can, there are things that I'm sure, like, our board doesn't want to do it that way, you know, right? Or, but, but what really gets in the way, and perhaps you could share some more stories of, uh, of, of efforts that, that museum folks try to, try to do to be more creative or to present things in a more creative light, but somehow they're, they're, the challenges are in the way of that. Well, I think I first want to recognize and honor some of the great creativity that is happening in museums. With I think we did a little on the podcast. So while there's still a challenge, uh, I think there's still a challenge for the next generation and for the future. I think that uh, there are a lot of people in this room doing amazing things. So we talked about uh, great acts of creativity that I think everyone here is up to. So I'm thinking of things like Black Sabbath, and uh, at the Contemporary Jewish Museum and the Leonard Bernstein exhibition that our museum did not so long ago. Yeah, where's... Oh, I'm sorry, Ivy, there's a head in front of you. Ivy Weingram curated that, so I know, and I know you're a great reader of wall texts in museums, so, um, and we were talking a little bit on the podcast about the people who read in museums and books on the wall and stuff like that. I think the act of really great label writing, sorry to sound like a total museum geek, but we, Ivy Weingram and other great practitioners here, it's like, fabulous poetry when you get a wall label right and uh we are curating our exhibitions so that there is i think um we are responding to all kinds of learners in museums people who consume cultural content in different ways like you and your wife for example dealing with uh, consuming museum experiences differently. That's our interactive in the uh, Bernstein exhibition that where you'd put a block into a hole in the interactive and hear about the, uh, the, really the Jewish roots of something in Bernstein's music. And since a cube has six sides, uh, there were six pieces of content about that piece of music. So it was a, just a fabulous um, interactive and I think burst of creative, um, joyful expression in in the exhibition, the, um, for those of you who just came out of the Sarah Berman's closet here at the Skirball, which we'll be, uh, making a version of in, um, opening in Philadelphia on Independence Mall in April. Um, isn't that an incredible act of creativity of bringing together and a way of telling in a humble immigrant woman's story in the context of our museums? And as it moves around, it's interpreting that story differently. So um, while we have a challenge for the future, I do want to just 
honor the incredible work that's happening in our museums already um, that is, you know, creatively looking at our subject matter in new ways and exciting people in new ways and engaging audiences in new ways. Um, that being said, we have challenges. Um, so there are, um, and I think, Dan, you alluded to boards wanting certain stuff. So while usually at Cajun things stay in the room, here I understand we're on a podcast, so we might save those stories for cocktails later. Um, but it is true that there are competing visions of what our museums need to do um, and the difference between our art museums and history museums of West Coast museums and East Coast museums, those who are holding on to tradition, especially in the context of the world now and uh, rising anti-Semitism. There's a lot of, and we've been talking about this on the bus and in the hotel lobby, just what our response and what is the proportional response that Jewish museums, sh how should we be addressing it in our places now without letting it kind of take over our, our missions and our presences. So, and, you know, the most obvious challenge, I think I'm just going to be honest Honestly, it are resources. It's money and time because when you're worried about raising money and, uh, you know, umbrella bags and visitor experiences and um, the kind of the work of running the museum, it's not like our curatorial staff, you'll forgive me, but they're not going off for a week. Maybe they are on the West Coast, but we're not going off for a week to like think great thoughts and get it together. We are running 120 miles an hour doing projects without enough money, without enough staff, without enough time. And honestly, one of the prerequisites for creativity is time. And so that is probably one of the greatest challenges, I would say. Well, let me raise for all three of you something that whoever wants to take it first, you know, and then uh, I, th I think it's uh, something that, that I'd love to hear all three of you talk about. Um, when we were talking to Jonathan Safran Four, again, we were talking about the Haggadah that he put together. Um, and, uh, you know, he, a lot of work went into it. It's got all kinds of layers. There was a new translation done of the Haggadah. And we had some conversation about the process of putting it together and why he put it together, which is that he attended a Seder and it was boring. And, um, and he, and he decided, you know, if, if all these other people can put together a Haggadah, I can too. And he put it together. And then I said, well, how was the Seder after that you ran with your Haggadah? And basically the answer was, eh. <laughs> and and it, it struck me a, a couple of things. One is that um, there's a difference between the process of putting together something and how it's how it's appreciated. Uh, that, that in other words, there's the the difference between the 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 intent of the creator and how that thing is actually experienced. And there's also the issue that I wonder whether what really would create an enlivened sense of being Jewish would be that if everybody felt like they were a creator rather than what I think we often think is that we hope that some creator will create something that will help everybody feel more Jewish. And so I'm, I'm wondering, Aaron, especially as, a, as an educator, you're, not, you're an artist and also a, an educator who, who works with people to become more creative, whether there's What's here in terms of the creative challenge, not only for a professional creator, but also for bringing creativity more into the center of the experience of your everyday Jew? Right. Um, 
So first, it, I was thinking about when you talked about the, the experience of creating and that not always translating. There's a saying in theater about, ah, the sound of rehearsal hall laughter is what we say. Something kills in rehearsal and you bring it on stage and it falls flat because we were in a moment in time together and suddenly, you know, you put it out in the public and it doesn't communicate in the way intended. Um, so that being said, I, I think a lot about the conditions for creativity, which is that, so for example, we are right now, for those listening, uh, we are right now in a proscenium setting. We are three feet up. There is kind of a false boundary between us. Uh, the audience is uh, relatively passive uh, participants, right? Um, you know, uh, luckily I'm not seeing many phones and much sleeping, but that can happen in this setting very easily. It is neither bad nor good. It is just a choice for engagement that asks the people receiving to be merely that, receivers, not co-creators. And... What would happen if this panel were in a circle and we were all looking at each other and forced to look across the circle and see if the person's dozing or looking at their phone, right? That suddenly we are actually co-creators of the experience because we something is being asked of us. And we talked about this on the podcast a little bit, that I think that the way creation occurs is when sacrifice is required. That either because literally people have to give something of themselves, uh, quite literally, they are creating something, or on a different level, they have to give something of their intellect and emotional life in an active way. And so I think about the conditions for creativity, and I think, you know, the museum space and, and what I've observed at the museums, I've been of the people in this room, I'm not an expert at museums by any stretch, is that there is an increased and ever-increasing awareness of, of participation um, as opposed to just reception. And I really admire that. And I, and I think about how can we continue to create that. And, and lastly on that, also to therefore, going back to not being codependent with our audience, also accepting multiple points of entry, that there are people who just want to be passive receivers. And how do we actually allow space for that so that they still find a way in while those who want to participate in a more active manner can do so. And they can be the leaders while some can be the followers. And that's kind of how things work. Society works that way. It is based on different stratas and different hierarchies and different ways of engaging. And if we can think about multiple points of entry as a, a way to lead, I think we create the conditions for creativity. It's an incredibly important part of, to the extent that museum curation and production and visitation is uh, also theatrical. Um, I think that's a really important part of all our experiences in museums now. So you're right that it's... it's um, no longer, I think, are we aspiring to being the, which we haven't in for generation, for at least a generation, of being the kind of experts and there's like trickle down and hopefully our visitors get a little piece of what we all know and the knowledge that we hold dear. So um, all our places at this point have either through technology or other means a way for visitors to contribute content uh, for user generated content for um, active engagement on the part of the visitors I think one of the things you were saying um, Aaron reminded me though of this idea of work um, and how much going to museums is about 
work. Uh, and I think that there is, there's a little bit of a rap that, um, history museums have that we're a little more work than art museums. You know, there's a, the Matisse, you sit in the armchair and beautiful things kind of come at you. Um, and, uh, we all love that. And there's, so we, are always kind of on that line of engagement without seeming like a chore, right? Um, and I think that's really important so that I think our job as uh, in museums is to be the facilitator um, between the object and the visitor, between the subject matter and and the, the visitor or audience member. And it's something like Umberto Eco and the open work or Martin Buber and I and thou since we're you know we're in a Jewish setting um so forget Umberto Eco that's for another time but the I and thou it's that hyphen it's that connection it's us being the facilitator it's us bringing those aspects together in the smartest way we know how to do and I think we've got some pretty good strategies for doing that these days and better and better all the time so we don't want those passive audiences on the other hand we don't want everyone to be working really hard when they're in our places the but you also mentioned Aaron that in theater Dybbuk you've got so many layers of interpretation and content and some some of your audience members are going to get it on one level and others are really going to delve deeper. And I think it's the same for museums. There are those people who are going to hop and see highlights and there are others who are going to read every syllable and um, ponder and spend hours. And hopefully we are designing our exhibitions so that either kind of audience member and all those in between are going to get out of it what they need and have their own entry points and their own stuff to take with them that is what they want to get out of the experience well i i'll just speak here about myself uh, because it's what i do um as a painter uh, there's been a long-standing uh, idea we received for a couple of hundreds of years um the idea that the artist inhabits a realm above everybody else and that the, the 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 point of the work of art being exhibited is that the audience is going to be enlightened or in, in some way by the by the artwork just by being present in front of it um and this 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 idea has been actually uh, cemented by the institutional framework uh, in which artworks especially contemporary artworks now now this are presented where you have uh, uh, an increasingly uh, cryptic and uh, uh, difficult to understand body of work produced by this practice called conceptual art and um, that is perceived as uh, being in need of being translated to layman language and that's why, why uh, what we have curators for in museums of contemporary art so the function of the curator is to present the work, explain it through a, a wall text, have the audience come in, read the wall text, look at the work, and, and feel like they learned something. Uh, for myself, I have been trying through my work to avoid that kind of uh, uh, dynamics. In my work, I've always tried to 
uh, have the audience participate by way, by this, in the same way that in which audiences have always participated in the perceptions of painting. Um, if the, the audience needs, or the public, or wh whatever spectator needs a, an explanation on the world, on the world to understand or to appreciate the work, then there's no point in making it, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, yes, you always need explanation, you, you always need framing, uh, but ultimately it is the experience of the artwork that ultimately uh, creates the meaning. And it's not the other way around it, that meaning creates the experience of the work. So let me uh, take it a little bit, uh, I wanna respond to sort of where you were going, Ivy, too, and, and all of this, that, um, that I think when we think about how a museum, let's shift a little bit to museums uh, more explicitly. That when we think about museums as somehow facilitating uh, creativity, I think there are two potential uh, audiences, so to speak, that, that we might be talking about. One is, uh, let's say, professional creatives. And, you know, there, that's where I think that Yishai's story is, is very poignant about the idea of going to a museum, seeing a particular artist's work, um, seeing that that work was actually, uh, in his view, not doing what it could have been doing, you know, not, not that there was an opportunity there that that artist didn't see, you know, and as a professional, you can do that. So in some ways, I guess my question is, uh, is there more that can be done by museums specifically to facilitate the work of professional creatives? Or is it kind of enough to just have these experiences available and, you know, then it's really kind of up to the professional to, to take it in a creative direction? That's question number one. Question number two, though, is for the rest of us. And it's where I was thinking about the, the wall text writer. And, uh, you know, it's hard to ask these questions. I worry about offending anybody, but I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, or I worry about betraying my ignorance that this is already done. But, I, but I'm thinking about, um, what my, my friend and mentor, Rabbi Erwin Kula, has said about, um, traditions. And I think this would also be true about artifacts. So he says that every tradition is, was once an innovation that made it. And, I wonder if we're not highlighting enough when we show these artifacts or traditions, if we're not highlighting enough how discontinuous they were when they first came onto the scene. You know, how, and, and so we're, we're looking at them as a, as something that came from the past and that's telling us something important from the past, but not necessarily telling us about the process of its creation in the first place and, and highlighting that. And I, and I guess I'm asking that on the, with, the, with the assumption that if we were telling that story, then going to visit that particular artifact would, would give the, the viewer the experience that says, um, hey, I saw that amazing thing and that opens my thinking that I could do something now with this, right? And, and so if, I, if I'm not so much uh, connecting with the current form of whatever that artifact was, um, you know, I can, I can create something new as opposed to the typical response, I think, which is more like, you know, well, that's, that's interesting, but if I don't create, connect to it, I guess I'll move on to the next exhibit. You know, I, I think some of this might be about the way we're defining creativity. So I think our answer is a little dependent on that. If we're saying, how much are we, are we making art makers? Um, then, you know, I'm not sure except that, that the, you know, art museums have long inspired artists to, to 
to make art. And if you think of Robert Ryman, who who passed away recently, was a you know a guard at um, MoMA, and um, his his expression came out of being with art and commenting on that. It might be um, a response of as people who walk into art museums sometimes say, I can do that better. Um, so, so there's that. But I think that when we're defining creativity um, in, a, in a bigger way, and not necessarily as innovation, but I think as, as someone said earlier, as iterative, um, that it's really about looking for us in Jewish museums, I think, at, at Jewish values, at Jewish wisdom, at Jewish history and I hate to say reinventing it because it's it's not really true even when we talk about Jonathan Safran Foer and the Haggadah it was very interesting and innovative I'm sure every single person in this room has a Seder in which they've got stapled things and things from other places and put things that they put together to create their own um you know, he had a publisher and he's spiffy. And so, so we respect that. And I think it's a fascinating document, but all of us are part of reinventing or making our own iteration of what it means to be a Jewish American. So I kind of re reject the concept that we're, um, that we're not, we're making creatives and that we're producing artists. I think we're producing, we're facilitating people who come to Jewish museums to think about their Jewishness or their family's Jewishness or their Jewish heritage. Um, and for non-Jews to think about Jewish practice and Jewish art and Jewish history in a way that is meaningful to them, that they take into their own lives in whatever way. So the, I think Haggadahs and Seders are the, are the most obvious version of this because I think they're kind of the most democratic and almost everyone is doing it. All our museums or many of our museums have done really interesting things with reinterpreting what a Seder looks like for different audiences, including ours. Um, and so I think it's that creative expression of saying I can, and maybe this is just very, you know, postmodern, post-war, post, post post um, is that we can't we make this into our own we the same way you have your uh, uh, you know your song list whatever it's called on Apple music your playlist thank you um, you know you are curating your own artistic experience all the time we are creating our own Jewish experience all the time we are all creators. We are all creators of, uh, of, of living American Jewishness. I think um, on, the, on the sort of professional artist side, right, which is sort of the other side of what, of what you were just speaking to to some extent, I can say that I think there are opportunities, some of which I recognize uh, institutions may be taking advantage of that I'm not fully aware of, for utilizing the skills expertise of of professional artists of a variety of kinds to intersect with the investigations of what's happening in the museums right that that i think sometimes we think of direct lines how do we speak exactly to the topic of this exhibition how do we speak exactly to the topic we are exploring when in fact sometimes what an artist and a professional artist can be really good at is exploring 
the theme that intersects with the direct exploration. And therefore, we enrich the conversation for the audience participant user by giving them, again, multiple points of entry that may not be a direct line but a crooked one so that they can find their way through, but it requires multidisciplines and intersections. So that occurs to me. Um, uh, because sometimes, for example, as an artist, we've been asked, you know, can you do something about this exact thing? And sometimes the answer is yes, but sometimes the answer is actually what we can do is illuminate that thing by bringing the topics to life that surround it. Which speaks to your second question, which was about um, context and about kind of what we're looking at and how we contextualize the objects or the various things we're engaging with. And I mean, I like to think that history is a series of either supporting the status quo or revolutions, right? That things are either in, in kind of a trajectory of saying, I am aligned with this and how do I fulfill on my alignment or how do I upend it? And I'm curious about what happens if that perspective is put on how we contextualize. That, that if we understand that the things that we uphold sometimes as the tradition were in fact revolutions, it therefore also has resonances for how we think about our world today and the revolutions taking place and the ways in which people are making choices that may upend the status quo, but that in a hundred years may look like the thing that is the status quo. And so I wonder what happens if we think about context and I, we talked about politics a lot on the podcast, if we think about context as a, as a um, political engagement, as, as that creators and creators of tradition are actually fundamentally engaging in political acts, and what happens if we put that lens at times on things to help those today recognize where they sit in history right now, because people were sitting in similar places 100, 200, 300, 500 years ago. I want to address the, question, the first question as to how do traditions start? They have to start somewhere. I wrote a, a, a piece, an essay, uh, about 20 years ago about uh, Yad Vashem after visiting Yad Vashem in the mid-90s. And uh, I was struck by, by how Yad Vashem has been, had been building uh, monuments to the Holocaust uh, for 60 years, and every single monument pretty much fails. Ultimately, the upshot of the, of the essay was that, well, in spite of failing and continuing failing, uh, failing in, 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 in uh, building these Holocaust uh, monuments, there is an overarching duty to keep trying. And in a way, that becomes the meaning of Yad Vashem, uh, striving and, and continuing in spite of failure. They don't think they fail, but it, looking at them critically, I, I found that. That, uh, that they operate that way. Now, when it comes to the U.S., um, I think we can uh, see what's going on right here as uh, the beginning of, or they are already a uh, uh, performance of some kind of tradition which is embodied by Jewish museums. It used to be that uh, Jewish communities uh, would build synagogues, community centers, and so on. But what I see now is that what communities are building are Jewish museums. Unless, I don't know how many synagogues are being built and community centers, it's, it's, it, it looks more like the, those kind of institutions are, stri are striving to remain open and functional. Uh, and maybe in 100 years from now, 
what we're going to see as the core of Jewish life in the U.S. is what's going on with what went on uh, with Jewish museums and how that translates uh, from now to then. Yeah. Maybe by then there's going to be a museum of Jewish museums. To see, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, so I think we want to uh, give a chance for, for folks uh, in the audience to ask a few questions. Before we do, I just want to say uh, one thing to give a little of my piece. I think that on the question of the, um, the times in which we live and, and also the Haggadah, and one thing that our podcast is really devoted to is this idea that we're in a particular time in Jewish history, a time of where creativity is needed, a time where the old ways are not working very well. And I think one of the interesting things about the sense that we now take it as a given that everybody's got to cut up Haggadah in their house and everybody's doing it every year, that, that, there was a point at which that became true and before which it wasn't true. And I'm not sure whether that was uh, Arthur Waskow's say, Freedom Seder or whenever it was exactly, but all of a sudden there was a sense, I think, of what well, you know when it was? F exactly 50 years ago. Exactly 50 years ago? Okay. Well, what was it? Oh, April 4th, 1969. You're saying the Freedom Seder. The original. Oh, okay, yeah. So, but, but, so I, I, I thought you were uh, disputing whether that was the uh, initiating event, but thank you for the accurate dating. Um, <laughs> that this is the why you should be here within the museum area. Um, but the, the, um, but whether it was that or whatever it was that gave the permission that you can do this. You know, you, I mean, I think for hundreds of years, I'm sure before that, people were terribly bored at Seder's. But somehow something happened and it gave them permission to say, hey, we can, we can reimagine this. And that to me is, is at least the question that's, that's in my head as to whether and how Jewish museums might become those places more broadly that um, give people a sense of encouragement and permission and inspiration to, to themselves be part of the process of reimagining Judaism and, and not, not merely visitors to its, its history um, or even to its presence. So I, I'm, I'm excited about this theme of, of of the conference, and I and I hope that's what will be. Um, so um, I think we'll we need, we'll uh, take the the mic out to anyone who wants would, to. Would it be okay if I ask a question? Oh, please. Yeah. Okay. Uh, You're in charge. Hi. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so you know, traditionally, our museums have been protectors of artifacts and interpreters of culture. Um, but as we kind of come to a point where we sort of we know what the objects are, I mean, there's new objects being created, but mostly we know what they are. We've kind of sourced them um, that we're really we're now sort of a museums of ideas and our culture is about ideas. And so I'm wondering from the three of you, um, if that doesn't take up too much time, you know, what are these ideas that we think will be important in museums kind of going forward? And let's just say the next 50 years. The, the thing that occurs to me, especially when it comes to Jewish museums and as a creator of, of art from a Jewish perspective, I think the questions of the breaking down of boundary and the ways in which identity is is no longer defined by the, the old measures of identity, right? We all know we had the big, the big blow up few years ago with one of the Pew studies and and there was a whole, oh, identity is going away. There was a fear that people were losing their Jewish identity and it's because we were using old markers of what identity means and looks like instead of saying identity is actually being reinvented, remixed, reimagined. And so I think that one of the one of the things 
in a space of ideas is is that question of what does it look like to remix, reimagine, and to therefore revisit identity from whole different perspectives. And then two, how does that dialogue then intersect with our larger communal, not exclusively Jewish dialogue, right? Like a lot of our conversations in Jewish spaces are about questions of Jewish continuity and how are we making sure that people still feel connected to the tradition. And I actually think it might be time to flip that narrative and say, how is the tradition in service of the world around us and in service of those who are engaging with it who aren't Jewish or whose Jewish identity looks very different than it did prior? And therefore, we are actually engaging with the world from a Jewish perspective instead of asking us to just look at ourselves and turn inward. So I think those are some of the areas that occur to me. I think that's really important. I think that we, um, our audiences are more diverse in their Judaism and outside of Judaism, and our conversations, I think, are continue to be too insular. And um, so, opening up that dialogue is is I think very important. I think it's all part of this, the kind of uh, the the postmodernist piece of this. So I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure that it was uh, Freedom Seder, but it was all those other times when uh, families decided they cared about certain things that they wanted to incorporate in their Haggadah and felt that the license to do that. So I think that's where Rabbi Kula's, you know, tr tradition used to be an innovation. But I, I think it's all iterative and making it your own and being able to talk to the world around you and be in, in, in real dialogue, uh, and think about how Jewishness, you know, in the case of our museum is part of, um, the American landscape and what specific parts of the story we connect to through a Jewish lens to the American experience. And, um, and depending on what our museums are about, um, you know, I think that's, it's really terribly important. I think one, one of our slides was the Garden of Stones at Museum of Jewish Heritage with, which still exists at, at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. But, um, that was, you know, the idea then in 2004 of a non-Jewish artist coming into a Jewish space to, uh, comment on the, tenacity of survivors and what it means to take root and to flourish. Um, that is the coming together of some unlikely ideas in one place that I think uh, is on the one hand completely accessible. We, I think we have a label. We don't need much of one because I think everybody kind of gets that on a different level and it doesn't hurt that you're looking out at the Statue of Liberty. So I think the, the question's really important and, but I do think the lack of insularity, being really aware of how we fit into the world around us and not having Jewish continuity as the, the, the thing that drives us, but hopefully a byproduct of the, of the kind of burst of joy of creativity that comes with being in our spaces. Hi, I'm Judy Margles. I'm the director at the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education in Portland. And I've really appreciated the conversation because I think there's a purity to what you're discussing. It's so refreshing. That being said, 
when we're thinking about the complexity of creativity and the challenges before us, how can we not bring politics into it today? So I think the question is really twofold. You know, for Ivy, thinking about museums, can we really not, um, do we not have to think about politics when we think creatively? And similarly for artists, um, where are we with politics in our work today? Thanks, Judy. <laughs> um, I think this is something we have always struggled with, and I personally am finding it harder right now than I ever have before. I think this is mostly, uh, you know, especially for our museum talking about National Museum of American Jewish History, dealing with the history of immigration at this very moment when things are as charged as they are, talking about, as I alluded to, you know, earlier, um, anti-Semitism and the role that that plays and what is the appropriate place for it in our interpretation in our museums. And uh, was talking to someone else about that, I think, this morning, because I think that there are, there's a Barbara Kruger work that used to be when I hear the word culture, I take out my checkbook. I think at a certain level, there's, there's something that in anti-Semitism that is really driving our donors in a way that is maybe not healthy for our institutions and is something that we really have to be very mindful about that. And I think that it's, it's some fancy footwork right now to strike the right balance between raising those issues and not letting them dominate our reason for being and our messages. So it's not really answering your question except to say that, yes, I really agree that it's a very hard time to do what we do now. And in part because we know that Jewish museums and museums in general are so trusted as sites for um, bringing truth and history and messages to our audiences that we necessarily, we try to stay neutral, whatever that is, see air quotes, you know, um, so that we are at least pissing off all our audiences equally, right? Uh, so there's something to be, to be said for, for that. And, um, not being, not being, there are other organizations that are in a better place for advocacy. Um, and I think to a certain extent we have to strike the right balance between where activism is in our museum practice, where there's a kind of call to action at the end of an exhibition or within an exhibition, as I think there is in RBG, let's say, here, subtle though it may be, it's there for sure. And to, to do that in a way with integrity without taking really a, a political position except when it's really the, the perfect circumstance when our mission with integrity addresses very specifically something that's happening in the world. So it's a tough one. I will say, first of all, I appreciated what you said, which is I as an artist, right, I have the, I have the um, privilege of, of not being neutral of like actually that part of the creative work and the way I fulfill on my duty is by having a point of view and letting the work sort of speak to and explore that point of view. So um, that being said, I do think that 
if we take politics out of out of the realm of what political candidate are you supporting, what bill are you supporting or not supporting, and instead think of it as a whole trajectory of questions of dominance and subjugation, then there is a lot more room to play in the realm of politics because then when every time we tell a story that is about a group being subjugated, we are speaking to the current subjugation in our own society. And every time we tell a story about a narrative being overtaken by a dominant narrative and people being silenced, every time we talk about anti-Semitism, not just for the purpose of looking at ourselves, but looking instead at what are the ways in which people are marginalized and stories are told about them in order to marginalize them, we suddenly are taking a political act, but one that does not name a candidate or a position, but opens up uh, avenues for dialogue. So it is, I think, fundamental to our work that we recognize that politics can't be separated from art and history. And if we are separating them, we are leaving out half the narrative. It's just about how we position that narrative. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you to our panelists. I have to say, it is fun to end bonus episodes with a round of applause. That was pretty great. Thank you to all of you who attended the event at the Council of American Jewish Museums conference. And of course, thank you to the Council of American Jewish Museums itself for making this partnership possible, for making all these episodes possible. We really enjoyed the series, and this bonus was a perfect way to cap it off. We want to close out this bonus episode in the same way that we end all of our episodes, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a variety of ways that you can do that. First, you can head to Judaism Unbound's Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can head to our Twitter feed at, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation you're able to make. And you can do that at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate with either a monthly recurring gift or a one-time donation. So thanks so much for listening. And with that... This has been Judaism Unbound.